Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. The first thing I have to do is explain to you what you're listening to. If you're unaware of the new show we've developed, which is called Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, which exists in both podcast form and currently currently, and that's an important word, airs at noon on Saturdays. But we sort of discovered that some of the people who like our regular Colin McEnroe show have not discovered Pardon Me. So we're we're airing this week's or last week's or whatever you want to call it episode now, the one that aired on Saturday. That's really complicated. Now, obviously, another thing that's happened is that the landscape has changed a little bit. So on the other side of the news, I will explain to you some of the newest things that affect some of the things that you'll hear in this thing. Have I, I I said thing enough. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. This is Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, which is currently airing in the slot of the normal Colin McEnroe show. You get all of that, right? So this is a show that we do about impeachment. It's a constantly changing landscape. So, for example, one thing we don't have right now when I'm speaking to you is a timeline. We don't quite know exactly what's going to happen or at least when it's going to happen. But some other things have happened recently, including Defense Secretary Mike Esper's refusal or Refusal is the wrong word, but he did not back up President Trump's explanation of how we got to the point of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Also, there are new reports that the Senate is a little softer, that there may in fact be Republican votes for calling witnesses, which is maybe enough Republican votes to so that that actually happens which could also be kind of a double-edged sword. So bear that in mind. That's a thing that we'll, we'll know more about with each passing day. Right now, though, one of our favorite things to do is to have Frankie Graziano, the world's greatest street reporter, go out into the street. Here he goes. One, two, three. Here comes the record. I am at the Walmart. <clears throat> Let's try that again. Probably about under 34 degrees. This is rush hour at Manchester's Super Walmart Center. So I imagine there will be a lot of people to at least ask for an interview. We are asking three basic questions today. One, are people losing interest in the impeachment process? Two, when's the Senate trial going to begin, if it'll ever begin? And finally, do they think that there's a connection between the impeachment and the conflict with Iran? All right. Excuse me, ma'am. I was hoping you could help me out and answer three basic questions. Uh, I'd rather not comment. Thank you. All right. You have a great day. Excuse me, sir. I'm a reporter with Connecticut Public Radio, and today we're asking people three basic questions regarding impeachment, and I was hoping you could help me out and speak with me. I really don't have nothing to say about that, but that's what the people want. That's what the people want. I care, but... That's my first question. Are you losing interest in the whole thing because of how long it's taking? Taking, yes. Yes, exactly. All they're doing is prolonging it. That's what they're really doing. They're just prolonging it. I'm kind of done with it. I wish they would just keep moving, but I'm sure there's a reason for whatever they're doing. The Democratic Party, but um, there's enough evidence. 
as far as the president is, he's always he's got something up his sleeve all the time. You know, he's messing with another government and he's trying to manipulate it for his benefit. And he's caught. He's caught. I'm still interested in it just to see how what actions they would take to further the progress of him being impeached. I'm not really for impeachment, but if it processes through, then it processes through. I really haven't been keeping up with that. Why is that? Are you, are you not interested? I'm not interested, period, And Donald Trump. At the beginning of it, I didn't think it was going to go this far. I thought maybe he'd probably be like, okay, I'll step down, but it didn't happen, so... And I think everybody really, they take him as a joke. But he took him as a joke and he got elected. So that tells you right there. Can't take him as a joke. We're paying attention to it. We like Trump. We still love Trump. Trump. All right, they're saying go Trump. We appreciate their sentiment and uh, the fact that they're actually speaking to us. There's more things going on in the world. And money still influenced the political game. And so it just set up precedent for whoever comes in next. If he doesn't get reelected, it would just be like, oh, this person is a savior. But it's because we've had such a, um, can you say Sure. If you want to say it. <laughs> you've had such a experience, then it's like the next person is going to be the savior of all things. You think that the Senate trial will begin anytime soon? No. Mm. <laughs> Maybe within the next couple of weeks. I don't know. Not too sure. Not too familiar with it. But something has to happen. I don't think it's going to happen no time soon. I mean, I think it's, it's going to be some kind of drama thing coming on on and on and on to throw it off. I mean, just like this bombing. It'll be something down the road next week, something that, that's going to happen. I think they're just making them sweat. I think they're just making them go crazy because they can't stand it. They're playing his game. Uh, probably by next month, I would think. Yeah, because this could take probably a couple of months, I think, because I know that the Senate's not going to vote to convict him based on what the current allegations are. So it's basically just a political move that I don't think will have the intended effect that they want it to have. They're more concerned with what's going on now. It might be war. So that's distracting them from, you know what I mean, impeachment. I'm going to get my gloves on because it's cold out here. I swear the temperature dropped dramatically. I came here around sunset. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. I'm a reporter from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm, I'm bothering people here today to see if they'll answer some basic questions sure. about impeachment. Oh, Lord. What about uh, recently we saw what happened with the Iranian general, and a lot of people are going back and forth saying that perhaps this is to, to stall the impeachment. What are your thoughts? I mean, that's, that's one of the tactics they probably try to use. So... I believe so. Yes, I can't. <laughs> I can't say there's no doubt in my mind that could be for him to go out and do this, man. It, it would be low for him to do, to do something like that just to stay in office. You know, that's not a leader of our country. I think it's something that Trump knows more uh, than the American yeah. people, and yeah. for us, we're just here watching it. But he knows more about what's going on. Uh, I don't find the timing of a coincidental. I try not to second-guess the commander-in-chief, even though I'm not really a Trump supporter per se, but when it comes to issues such as military actions that he feels, or, you know, his cabinet feels are going to save the lives of American troops and our allies over there, then I'm generally okay with that. I mean, short of some evidence coming out, you know, that it was the wrong thing to do. 
well this is what i think sometimes it's like a what is it flash and bang you bring something in to distract someone because there's other things going on so i think everything is a political move there's always timing of something and it's like okay so what are you being distracted against what are they trying to take you away from seems like nobody know what they're doing so it, it, it's crazy man it's just it's just crazy to live in this country like this right now and so much so many scandals and stuff going on with people in the white house it's crazy you know we got a hearty crazy out of you in this cold so that, that makes me feel good about my interviewing skills here tonight <laughs> and uh would you mind sharing one item that you got from walmart today oh geez when i got her cat litter good old cat litter all right are the cats paying attention to the impeachment no they're not at all they could care less Okay, that was Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano. Of course it was. Talking to Tim and Erica and Lisa Phillips and Dan, Dakota Dan McGuigan. I think that is trademarked also. All from Manchester. Kevin Amos from Hartford. Corey Delk, Melody John, and a few other people. Who knows who they were? Anyway, up next is Sarah Kenziar. Let me just say this. There is a group of people, a group of commentators who really almost from the get-go, have regarded Trump's ascendancy as an attempt to create a kind of autocracy that never existed in America before. They, they see him as a tyrant or a tyrant in training or a wannabe tyrant, and they tend to interpret everything that he does based on that. And sometimes it's hard to argue back against that. Anyway, that's who Sarah is, and I, it's one of the viewpoints. It's an important one to have. That's why we have her on. She's also one of the most excitable commentators and this manifests itself in this interview by the way she keeps accidentally pressing the buttons on her phone so if you're triggered by beeping you know i I don't know you do whatever you do when beeping is coming sarah kenzior how are you I'm good. How are you? Good. How's your sleep patterns these days? We were just discussing, respectively, how much sleep we're getting. God, uh, bad, minimal. It really depends whether, you know, planes are crashing in Tehran right. and we're going to World War Three. It's dependent upon that. So. All right. So not good. Not good. I, 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 not that was sort of my guess anyway. Okay. So here we go. Three, two, one. Sarah Kenzior is a writer, researcher, and co-host of the podcast Gaslit Nation. Her newest book, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America, will be released this spring. Who knows what will be happening by then? And then you can just sort of buy continuous updates to the book. I think that's probably what should happen. Sarah's been on our show before. was on our show, I think, for the first time, kind of right after the 2016 election. And things have pretty much gone as she said they would. So I don't know where you want to begin. Obviously, you know, we initially framed this show as a running weekly show on impeachment. And it's hard to do a show about impeachment now without including Iran. So maybe I'll just begin by asking you, I mean, how do you link these two things? What's your either working theory or your actual factual understanding of how these two things are connected? Well, it's complicated because on one hand, we know that Trump saw a war in Iran as a way to divert public attention from the corruption of his administration and from impeachment. And we know this because in 2011, Trump went on this rant about Obama and the upcoming election, saying that Obama was going to start a war in Iran in order to win, that this is the only way a president could win the election. And, you know, Trump tends to project a lot onto other people, but it's really going on for himself. And we also know that he has, from the start, had a cabinet full of advisors who have wanted war in Iran, no matter how much this cabinet changes, 
that's one of the commonalities that holds everybody together, including people like Mattis and John Bolton. And so, you know, on one hand, yes, it's a, quote, distraction, you know, a time-tested strategy of leaders who are in peril, but it matters in its own right, and it matters for the human casualties of unstable geopolitics, of the regional conflict spreading, obviously beyond many borders. It's already impacted both Iran and Iraq and us. It's endangering the world. And so, yeah. You, know, you, you, might, you might be getting so excited. I just want to say, you might be getting so excited that you're accidentally pressing your phone button. I mean, one thing you're saying, I think, is First of all, whatever the reasoning was, and I'm inclined to agree with you that the reasoning includes a lot of the kinds of calculation that you're talking about, he has taken one part of the world, taken it kind of from dangerous to incredibly dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been the case with Trump from the start. And, you know, they tried to present him in 2016 as this kind of neutral figure, as person who would end the forever wars that America has been engaged with. But you know, when you look at what he actually said, he was a warmonger. He talked about bombing countries indiscriminately. He talked about deploying nuclear weapons. And so now that we're at this juncture where we actually are engaged in military aggression with Iran, uh, which so many people surrounding him wanted, it's extremely dangerous. All right. Let's hear a, a clip from Trump's Wednesday press conference. And he's talking about the U.S. options for dealing with Iranian aggression, which may give us some sense of whether he thinks thinks this has kind of reached an angle of repose or whether there's going to be a going forward. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. So one of the things that a few people have pointed out, Sarah, is that the press has also talked about this being the outcome. Mike Pesca on his show, I thought, did a really good job of kind of sketching this out, saying, well, how do you know it's the outcome? I mean, Iran and Hezbollah are kind of notorious players of the long game. The notion that however this wrapped up over a 48-hour cycle would be the outcome seems uh, like seems almost naive. Oh, it's extremely naive, especially when you're dealing with Soleimani, when you're dealing with an assassination. And you're going to see a long-term strategy both from the government of Iran, but also from unpredictable actors, from people on the ground. There are important dates to look at. You know, I would look at 40 days after the assassination, which is, you know, a traditional period of mourning to see if anything happens then. And just, you know, not a lot of time has passed. And I think a lot of different countries, different players are evaluating the political situation and trying to figure out how to weaponize it for their greatest gain. And that includes not just the U.S. and Iran, but also Iraq, Russia, now Ukraine may be involved because of this plane crash, Israel, Saudi Arabia, any regional actor in the Middle East. It's very unpredictable. I think it's hard to determine where this conflict is going to go, but I definitely don't think it's wrapped up now. Right. And it's certainly the notion, I mean, the, the way that he and his supporters would, would want us to perceive this is that he got us... In, uh, 
into some kind of crisis, but it was a manageable crisis. It has been managed and it's over. And, uh, you know, once again, I, I don't I think that's kind of optimistic. So he has a lot of audiences for this. But there's a way, as you have already suggested or implied, there is a way in which there's an audience. Of, there may be an audience of one. And that's John Bolton. Not that he only cares what John Bolton thinks, but we'd have to wonder how John Bolton regarded this whole Iran thing. It's exactly the kind of thing he would have wanted. He would have probably pushed for if he were still in office. Here he is talking about his willingness to testify. And, you know, you can kind of game theory this out a bunch of different ways. I don't think it's necessarily the case that John Bolton would go, oh, well, you killed Soleimani, so... I guess I don't really want to testify anymore. That that doesn't sound like John Bolton to me. Do you have thoughts about this? I think John Bolton wanted a much greater war in Iran than he was given both during his time in the White House and now. He wants this to be a massive regional conflict. He wants to destroy the Iranian government. He's talked many times about bombing Iran. He's talked about preemptively using nuclear strikes. Like He is a fanatic, and this is his one goal. And as for his willingness to testify, you know, of course, it's notable that he won't testify to the House, which is controlled by the Democrats. He will allegedly testify to the Republicans who haven't asked him to. And he put up his little entreaty on a website that was also an advertisement to give him money. You know, so he's like a neocon turned neocon artist. It's so brazen. It's so Trumpian, the way he's trying to monetize this conflict. And so, I mean, my I guess my summary on this is just don't trust John Bolton. Don't trust him to have any interest in this except for his own self-interest. Don't trust him to necessarily tell the truth under you know, testimony. But the one thing you can kind of rely on, the one thing that's been stable with him, is his lust for a war in Iran. And he's going to try to push everyone in a position of power toward that conflict until he gets what he wants, and hopefully he won't get it. So once again, I mean, you're talking in kind of a progressive way. I mean, not progressive in terms of your political orientation, but progressive. This is a story. The story of our engagement in Iran with Iran is a story that is going to continue. This didn't get wrapped up neatly. There'll be a lot of people. You talked about how there are a lot of different interests in the Middle East and outside the Middle East and in places like Ukraine, all of whom may have different ideas about what should happen next and what should happen after that. But there are a lot of people here in the U.S. who also have similar competing agendas. You know, it did surprise me a little bit when the briefing happened yesterday. Well, I'm, I'm talking to you on Thursday, so it's yesterday. And two Republican senators, especially Mike Lee, came out and was outraged by the just childishness and, and lack of completion in this briefing. It seemed like a pretty significant break with the party line on all this. What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it was Mike Lee and Rand Paul. And first of all, you know, any person in Congress should be protesting this reckless military engagement with Iran and the assassination of Soleimani and the lack of strategy. So just generally speaking, it's good to do this. But I do question whether their motivation was rooted in patriotism due to their own connections to the Kremlin. You know, both Lee and and Rand Paul are people who had visited the Kremlin recently and had spent a lot of time in their Congress pushing hard against sanctions on Russia for their interference in the 2016 election and for their invasion of Ukraine. They are, you know, Kremlin lackeys. And I wonder if their words were somewhat motivated by the Kremlin's position because Russia is an ally 
of Iran, and they may not want this kind of unpredictable conflict. And I think Trump's demeanor at his own press conference, where you know he sounded like human ambient, he, he sounded like he was in a hostage video, may also come from this. The backing down may be linked to uh, everybody's connection with Kremlin and Kremlin-affiliated actors who are wary of this conflict. So, Sarah Kenzier, I want to talk a little bit about how the press covers this. You know, there's this sort of repeated trope that has popped up from time to time over the past three years. This was the day that Trump really became president of the United <laughs> States, right? We've heard that a whole bunch of times. That is a trope. That is a wire that gets kicked over and over again. And one of the times it gets kicked, I think it got kicked over a missile launch from that was declared in Mar-a-Lago very early in the presidency. That was the day that Trump finally became president. And there's a way in which the press does see things like this, no matter what they may think overarchingly about Trump, as proof of something about him, proof that he is strong or proof that he is president. What's your take? I think it's disgusting and it's dangerous because human lives are at stake. I wish that the press would show more responsibility because we've already seen Trump engage in all sorts of horrible, reckless military action, you know, dropping an MOAB in Afghanistan, you know, basically being in favor of the genocide of the Kurds, the assassination of Soleimani. Every time the press cheers him on, he becomes emboldened, he becomes more aggressive and more reckless in his violence. And what people need to remember is that Trump has been seeking to use nuclear weapons for 30 years. This is a 30-year obsession. His first interview about this was in 1984 with the Washington Post. And he said repeatedly, if we have these weapons, why can't we use them? And if Trump feels cornered, if he feels beaten down by the impeachment process, for example, he may not be in a rational state of mind. He may be in a state of mind you know, what he can do as president. And as president, he has the unilateral ability to use nuclear weapons. You know, no one can stop him. The Pentagon can't stop him. He's the sole person who can do this. So the press should be very cautious. They should be very measured. They should realize that Trump takes his cues often from them, especially Fox News. That's his real team of advisors to some extent. And if he feels like this is going to give him popularity and power, He'll do it. And the, the results will be disastrous for humanity. So I hope people take that into account when they continue their coverage. One of the things that I've done while we've been working on this show is look at all the ways in which other countries either remove or discipline their chiefs of state. And first of all, it happens more than you might think in other countries. And it's done all kinds of different ways. Sometimes their highest court is involved rather than a legislative body. In at least one case that I learned of, it, it can be done by, I think it's Romania, it can do it by a public referendum. But you alluded to this a couple of seconds ago. It seems as though we're heading into a trial that disproves the notion that we have a way of removing our chief executive rather than proving it. In other words, if there's a trial with no evidence, a trial with a predetermined outcome, a trial in which witnesses cannot be called, it almost invalidates the notion that we have a constitutional remedy. Yeah, we don't have one anymore because the founders didn't account for the fact that it's possible for a party uh, you know, of senators supporting a tyrannical president finally will continue to do so throughout this process. I think that all of this is unprecedented. I think nobody really thought that it would go this far. You know, everyone anticipates the rise of a dictator. That's why he announces 
in place. They didn't anticipate an entire party basically using those mechanisms for their own aims. I think if it goes to the Senate, the goal is to have a show trial. And Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham have been forthright about this. So has Bill Barr and other people in the Trump administration. They want to take the investigators and the witnesses and make them the targets. You know, they want to persecute and prosecute them. And so, yeah, our our traditional remedy for removing, you know, a tyrannical actor is gone. And of course, with Trump, you can't rely on shame. You can't rely on things like, what will your legacy be? Or any of those traditional questions you would ask a prior president. He only cares about money and immunity from prosecution. And being the president is a way for him to keep that immunity from prosecution. So he's going to do absolutely everything possible. And that's why I'm also worried about 2020, that if he does lose, that he won't concede, that he'll simply, you know, he'll deem it rigged and he'll stay there and then we'll be, you know, in an even more serious crisis than we're in right now. Yeah, I just want to go back to what you said before, because I think it's an interesting question. I mean, the term show trial, you know, can have a couple of different meanings, I guess, although I, I never thought of it before. But I think that Trump, in envisioning a show trial, envisioned at the beginning a trial in which witnesses would be called, in which cases would be put on, and then he would prevail. Whereas it seems to me whatever is being contemplated here and we're going to find out, I guess, probably in a couple of weeks, maybe it'll get going or, or a week and change, probably it'll get going. It doesn't seem like a show trial. It seems like a little bit of process followed by a verdict. You know, I mean, I, I don't think the demonstration of exoneration that Donald Trump was envisioning can happen in such a compressed way. I don't think exoneration is the sole thing that he and his cohort are after. They want exoneration, and they also want revenge, which is going to include people like Marie Yovanovitch, you know, and all the others, Fiona Hill, who testified during the impeachment hearings. They also have sent out a list of people that they want to testify. I think Hunter Biden was on it. That's the kind of show trial that they want. They need to have new enemies for the American people to distract the American people from Trump. And in Trump's mind, with his experience, he wants a reality TV show trial. Like, that's the kind of framing that he can relate to. You know, he's casting people. He casts his administration, and he wants to cast his impeachment. And he actually is skillful at this. He's good at propaganda. He's good at PR. The question is, will the Senate go along with this endeavor? That remains to be seen. They might just want to have it said and and done with and over. But I think that, you know, we've seen how Mitch McConnell operates. They're going to want to take this to, you know, whatever advantageous position for themselves they can find. And I think they will want to make an example out of anybody who dared rise up against them, dared testify against them to discourage others from doing so in the future. And that's a frightening thing. You know, that's what happens in autocracy. Well, you know, when you say make an example, I mean, obviously, this has already begun a little bit with the kind of semi-outing of the whistleblower. But are you suggesting that the Yovanovitches would face some other kind of discipline beyond termination of their employment? Or I mean, she's already been called back as an ambassador. She's already been through this whole process. You're, You're saying more might happen? I think more could happen. I mean, all of the people who testified in that impeachment hearing were threatened with death threats. They spoke about it, some of them under oath, some of them during interviews. The threats for them were very serious. They had to have private security. And that's been an ongoing theme of this administration that really isn't talked about enough. 
We saw this in the trials of people like Manafort and Stone. The judges were threatened. The jury was threatened. You know, Trump is linked to organized crime, and this is how organized crime operates. And so I hope that nobody's life is threatened. I hope that nobody is jailed for testifying against the president. I hope those things don't come to pass, but I think we'd be foolish to rule out anything. You know, there aren't limits with this administration. They're not even putting up the pretense of being democratic actors. They're overtly autocratic at this point, and they're also flailing around trying to preserve their power for 2020. And I think they're going to become more abrasive and more abusive as time goes on. So I wouldn't, you know, put anything off the table. And this has been an argument that you've been making pretty much since day one, that this is not an administration that will be ruled by law or will have ample consideration of law before it does something that, in your mind, Trump is an actor who will basically accumulate as much power as he can, defy as many limitations of his power as he can, and explore the outer limits of his power in a way that transcends any kind of normal democracy. To your point, we know that the Ukraine call happens the day after the Mueller report. So, you know, there's sort of a sense in which you you give him that kind of space and he immediately uses it in a different way. I guess what I'm hearing as you talk now, Sarah Kenzior, is a similar idea, which is that if we get through this whole process and if, as it seems, you know, 90 percent likely, he is not removed from office, he has the stain of impeachment but not the removal from office, that creates, in his mind, what, more space to do even more things? I think so. I mean, I I think in this case, the absence of impeachment would have been even more empowering for him. So it's good that the House impeached because it does taint the Trump brand. It does show that people are at least trying to stand up for him, and they should have dragged those hearings out much longer just to educate the public about everything the Trump administration is doing. They shouldn't have kept that scope so narrow, and they should have gone after the offenses that Mueller documented in his report. I think it was a bad move not to, but At this point, you know, Trump is a mix of emboldened because he's managed to stay in power for three years. The courts have been packed. Agencies have been gutted. He has put lackeys in their positions. He's installed his family into power. Those are all the textbook moves of an autocrat. And he's done them with very little meaningful blowback. Trump and his people, they don't care about being caught. And he's never been punished. You know, people are refusing to prosecute him, saying, you know, they can't because he's the president. And they're barely investigating him anymore. So he's going to be emboldened no matter what happens in the Senate. But, yeah, I don't think they're obviously going to convict him. We see that with McConnell saying it openly. They've preemptively exonerated him. And the real question is, I think his mind will be on the election. It'll be on 2020 and on November and how to preserve power for himself and his family going forward. That was Sarah Kenzior, a writer, researcher, and co-host of the podcast Gaslit Nation. And maybe that was also somebody from the NSA bugging her phone and making those beeping noises. But I tend to think it was Sarah getting excited. After this break, the third edition of Factoids with Kyone Wolf and law professor Bruce Ackerman.
Hi, this is Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. You just missed a big chunk of it, so I don't know. Go back. Do something. I'm Colin McEnroe, and what we have for you now is the third edition of Factoids with Kion Wolf. I also want to say that after that, you're going to hear me talk to law professor Bruce Ackerman, and we'll explain all about him then. One thing that I, I sort of think might not be clear, we talk a lot about how military force is legitimized here in the United, United States. And I think we may have used an acronym, both of us, that we didn't explain. It's AUMF, which is the Authorization for Use of Military Force. It kind of has replaced declarations of war. There was one right after 9-11. There was another one going into Iraq not too long after that. And, and military force kind of runs off those two things to this day. We just don't declare wars or anything. I, I was worried that might not be clear. Anyway, here we go with factoids. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell seems to have his entire conference behind the Clinton rules for impeachment, which required 51 votes to subpoena someone for testimony. Under certain circumstances, Charles Grassley, President Pro Tem of the Senate, could vote for an impeachment that would make him President of the United States. For what appears to be the first time in U.S. history, the percentage of lawyers in the U.S. Senate has dipped below 50. Croatia, Lithuania, and South Korea conduct impeachment trials in their highest courts. Romania puts presidential removals to a national referendum. In Italy, 16 people from outside the country's parliament are chosen to join 15 high court judges in deciding impeachments. In 2012, Romania failed to remove its president because not enough people, only 46% of eligible voters, participated in the referendum. In a meandering 2,500-word internal memo, Facebook executive Andrew Bosworth warned the company against using its power to tilt the scales against Trump, even though he himself opposes Trump. He used a Lord of the Rings analogy. What says my hand, wrote Bosworth, Specifically, when Frodo offers the rain to Galadriel, and she imagines using the power righteously at first, but knows it'll eventually corrupt her. Galadriel is the mighty elf queen played by Kate Blanchett in the movies. Bosworth spelled her name wrong. He also cited philosopher John Rawls. The Democratic National Committee announced this week it'll postpone its January 14th debate if there's a Senate impeachment trial that day. Five candidates have qualified for the debate. Three of them are senators. Newsweek reported this week that some evangelicals see the unexpected election of Trump in 2016 as proof that God has a plan to use him to usher in the end times and the return of Jesus to the earth. This has been Factoids. I'm Kion Wolf. Hi, this is Colin. How are you? Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, fine. So how much sleep are you getting these days? Well, not too much, but that's not, I mean, somehow or other, I managed to uh, do a lot. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> not a little. Um, I feel the same way. Okay, so here we go. Three, two, one. We are fortunate right now to have with us Bruce Ackerman, the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale, the author of 19 books, including <laughs> We the People, his three-volume work on American constitutional development from the founding to the present. And he recently wrote a piece for American Prospect on why President Trump should be impeached for the killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani. Maybe let's begin 
right where your piece begins, Bruce Ackerman, with then non-official Donald Trump talking about then-President Obama. Here's the clip. Our president will start a war with Iran because he has absolutely no ability to negotiate. He's weak and he's ineffective. So the only way he figures that he's going to get reelected, and as sure as you're sitting there, is to start a war with Iran. So you write that this is one of many instances of President Trump kind of projecting his own ideas onto another actor. Yes, I'm afraid so. But I'm not so interested in psychoanalyzing Donald Trump. I'm interested in the Constitution. And we have to understand here that this moment is going to have a profound impact not only on this president, but on future presidents. Some of our presidents are going to be good. Some of them are not going to be not so good. But one thing we have to establish in one way or another is that the president of the United States cannot unilaterally make war. This was a foundational principle of the founding of this republic. After all, King George III, that's just what he did. He didn't get the consent of the parliament. He made war against the colonies. The colonies would have been happy to have had some kind of reasonable solution. He refused. And while the founders in Philadelphia disagreed about a host of things, the one thing that they really, no, no disagreement whatsoever, was that the president of this new republic is not going to be the king of the country. So in 1973, just as Nixon was resigning, Jacob Javits, who was a leading Republican at that time, said, look, this stuff about declaring war and all that's too vague. We have to have clear rules. And that's what the War Powers Act of 1973 established. And the first clear rule in Section 2 of the Act says that before the President of the United States goes into a situation in which there is an imminent danger of hostilities, he has to consult with Congress, and in particular, the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem of the Senate. Now, President Trump refused to do that. He consulted with his executive advisors. So we know it was possible because he engaged in a good deal of consultation. We don't know how many days or weeks this went on. This is a violation of the Constitution. Let me play kind of devil's advocate about this and say, all right, so from a certain point of view, yeah, as you've just traced us through, those 55 guys meeting uh, in secret, they they were pretty clear about who they wanted to be in charge of declaring war. Congress, unambiguous, no question about it. But then as we go through history up to the War Powers Declaration, you know what? We can get in war all kinds of ways. At this point, we've got a $738 billion military budget. We can give you a war anytime you want. And for the most part, 
I would argue, before and after the War Powers Act in 73. You know, I mean, how long did they use the post 9-11, the AUMF or whatever that was, you know, as justification? Well, that's the reason we're doing it. 16 years ago, we passed this thing that said you could do stuff because of 9-11. I mean, it's a rule that nobody obeys very well. So is it a rule? Well, first of all, I want to make it clear that Ronald Reagan recognized the War Powers Act. What the War Powers Act says is, unless there are some special provisions we'll talk about later, you have 60 days to get the consent of Congress. Ronald Reagan, at the end of 37 days, he invaded Lebanon. He couldn't get the consent of Congress. He pulled the troops out. So it is not true that this act was sort of disregarded from the beginning. You're absolutely right. It is basically 9-11 that was the crucial turning point. Now, whatever you think, you see, I'm not, I'm talking law here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not talking about the wisdom of policy. George W. Bush obeyed the War Powers Act. In 2001, he went to Congress and got an explicit AUMF, as you just pointed out. He did not simply run in and attack in Afghanistan. A year later, he was being told by the CIA, uh, very much in the manner that Trump is being told by his intelligence, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And on that basis, he goes back to Congress and gets an explicit authorization to invade and counter the threat by Iraq. So whatever you want to say about George Bush, he obeyed the War Powers Act, especially in the beginning. So you've got this situation that you've outlined where, in fact, there's a process. There's a process that other presidents have followed, sometimes more, sometimes less. But there's a process. It's in the Constitution. It's amplified by the War Powers Act in 73. And then you have a situation here where what seems to be a palpable act of war is committed without consultation with Congress, without even notification of Congress, seems to be in violation. You've got some members of Congress already saying, Bruce Ackerman, what you're saying, which is this constitutes another impeachable act. But what's the practical likelihood that it would be an impeachable act? In other words, this means going back to the House, which I think wants its labors to be done on this cycle anyway of impeachment, possibly having hearings all over again. I mean, it just seems as a practical matter like something that will never happen. Well, I can't judge that. We don't know when Speaker Pelosi is going to come forward with this. The crucial point is that this is far more of an impeachable offense than what we have been considering so far. To be sure, the Ukrainian issue is a significant one, but it isn't involving the proposition that one person can engage in war. That is a constitutional proposition, if accepted, will have consequences for decades. Um, Right. I mean, he's functioning as this real kind of unitary executive. And and as you point out in your article, and I mean, he doesn't even really consult within the executive branch. He barely has anybody to consult with. He's got a skeletal staff. But if they were at 100 percent, he probably wouldn't run things through them or ask for all kinds of assessments and probable outcomes. He's just not interested in that kind of stuff. As you've sketched out here, you've got a guy he's not playing by the rules around important stuff like killing people who are high ranking officials of other governments. So it's not like he's 
cheating on his taxes. This is bigger than that. It does seem as though your 55 friends back there framing the Constitution thought this is what you do when you have somebody who isn't playing by the rules anymore. But that mechanism seems broken right now. Well, it doesn't seem broken. Uh, Indeed, in certain ways, impeachment is a much more of a potent weapon today. If this were a third count of impeachment and we would have testimony by witnesses on both sides, supervised by John Roberts, tens of millions of people would be watching. Despite all this talk about polarization, there are tens and twenties of millions of people who haven't made up their mind on this. There are people on the left and there are people on the right, but there are a lot of people in the middle who have a lot of other things to do, like get their kids to school, and they haven't been focusing on this. But they will be watching if this were a central TV event and a central event on every kind of streaming media. And they'll be talking to their friends and things of this kind. If there's a substantial change of public opinion, either on behalf of the president or against the senators will notice. Bruce Eggerman, you've just mentioned in passing a really interesting thing that that is sort of an idea not in evidence yet, which is what is the role of Chief Justice John Roberts? We know he is supposed to preside over the trial, but preside probably means something different here than it typically means for a judge to preside over a trial. So how much leeway would he have to, for example, say to Mitch McConnell, look, we cannot have a trial where neither side is able to present evidence. Can he do that? Would he do that? Well, John Roberts and I were both uh, law clerks for the same judge many years ago, and I actually know him. And while we uh, do disagree on the merits of uh, various constitutional issues, I can tell you for sure that John Roberts is a serious constitutionalist and professional, and he is perfectly aware that 50 years from now, his conduct of this trial will be a central element of his legacy. Absolutely. And he's an institutionalist, too. He believes in the Supreme Court. Absolutely. He doesn't want the Supreme Court to look silly. On the other hand, the Supreme Court typically has been more willing to rule on questions like, can somebody withhold evidence that has been subpoenaed, for example? Is it possible to compel production of the Nixon tape? As opposed to, like, how the minutiae of a trial itself in the Senate is conducted. That seems to drag them into a place that maybe Robert doesn't want to be for exactly the reasons you just outlined. Completely right, except for the conclusion. Okay. (laughs) The Supreme Court of the United States is nine judges who are appellate judges. They are supervising the entire system, and they are taking really the key cases and intervening there. They're not used to ruling on particular issues of evidence. That's not what their job is. Right. That's what district judges do. In this particular case, however, John Roberts by himself Mm -hmm. is representing the judiciary before the American people. And he is perfectly aware that the way he will be perceived by the American people will be of profound significance so far as the legitimacy of the Supreme Court of the United States is concerned in future cases. Right. So when you put it that way, you've got Roberts who's looking at a situation where we speak of checks and balances, but clearly there's not much checking President Trump so far. And there's not much balance coming from at least the 
upper chamber of Congress. McConnell is reluctant to play a checks and balances role of any kind. In fact, he's openly collaborating with Trump and Trump's people on defense. So that intuitively screams out for Roberts as a representative of the third branch to be the check and the balance. There's some cost of asserting judicial prerogative in that situation and saying, you know what, I am going to blow the whistle here. Sure, but the cost on the other side is much greater. If John Roberts is perceived as simply a toady of Mitch McConnell, this will have disastrous consequences on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Moreover, consider for one moment the situation of Mitch McConnell. What has Mitch McConnell actually delivered during the Trump administration? Two things, the tax cut and the series of appointments, and most notably the two to the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah, I mean, Neil, Neil Gorsuch is, is a whopping bonus. To defy John Roberts, who is a representative of the Supreme Court of the United States, and have a shouting match between him and John Roberts, who is symbolizing his achievement? This is uh, not obvious to me. I think that everyone, but in particular John Roberts, will be aware that this is not a standard situation. This is rather a situation in which the two branches, and this is what the founders thought, we have the presidency on the one hand and the Congress on the other, and then we need a neutral third party. Otherwise, why does the Constitution specify that only in the case of an impeachment of the president does the chief justice suddenly become the presiding officer? Not in other cases. You know, there are impeachments of other judges and and other federal officers. The chief justice is not involved. And when the chief justice was impeached in the case of Samuel Chase, Aaron Burr, who was under indictment for murder, presided over the trial. I always love that one. That's that's an example. That's a worse situation than we're in, maybe, anyway. So, so, uh, Bruce Ackerman, I just want to say, from your lips to God's or John Roberts' ears, as the case may be, I mean, I think a lot of us are hoping that somebody is going to come in and throw a penalty flag here and say, this is not a real trial. I guess, and it's nobody knows really right now. You maybe know better having clerked with him or clerked for the same judge, but like, is he really the kind of guy? We know he'll do a lot of things to protect the institution of the Supreme Court. I want to tell you that I've devoted my life to understanding and studying the constitutional development of the United States over the last 200 plus years. And what we're witnessing is a tragedy in the Greek sense. And if Roberts isn't equal to this, and if this is reduced to a partisan, plainly politicized shell game, then 10 years from now, there'll be another president of one or another party, and Congress will be controlled by the opposite party, and they will cite this and use it as a weapon to impeach the next president and the next one. And this kind of cycle of weaponization of impeachment, which is one of my great fears in all this, will lead to the widespread alienation of the American people. What are these clowns doing? There aren't there better things to do than kick each other out. So this is a very serious moment in American constitutional development. I say it with sadness. You say it with sadness, but I also hear, maybe I'm wrong, I hear a little bit of hope here. I mean, the chance 
that Roberts, I don't hear this from a lot of people, the idea that Roberts is going to come in and say, this cannot be done in such a slapdash way. This cannot be done in a way that's essentially a mockery of what a trial would be. You are going to have to have a real process here. I mean, that's a kind of activism that I think most people don't foresee from him. So in some ways, you may feel that this is tragic, but you're also, I think, more hopeful than the average American right now, at least on that score. Well, (laughs) we'll soon find out. Well, Bruce Ackerman, thanks for doing this. Sure. And that's it. Well, that's not it, but the sixth episode of Pardon Me is all done. And I'm Colin McEnroe, the way I was at the beginning of the episode. And it was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol. We're on Connecticut Public Radio Saturdays, for now anyway, at noon. And in your podcast feeds all the time. And thank you so much for listening. We're going to get through this together somehow. And when you look back, you're going to say... Who, who was that guy who had the thing? It had like a pink logo. It was a podcast about something. It was called Excuse Me, something like that. Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>